Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to Buckeye Talk. It's Doug Lamarice. It's finally the traffic podcast. We're trying to get you guys in this podcast for a couple days, and football stuff keeps happening. We are doing this because I think people are interested in it, maybe. I got a lot of questions from tech subscribers about driving habits, about things that should or shouldn't be done in traffic, about ways we could all be a little bit better to reduce traffic. And I somehow found an expert from Ohio State to help us talk about this. He's Dr. Benjamin Koifman. He is a professor of civil environmental and geodetic engineering, a professor of electrical and computer engineering. And these are his research interests, according to his bio on the Ohio State website. Intelligent transportation systems, traffic surveillance, traffic control, Traffic flow theory. Traffic flow theory. How important is that? Driver dynamics. That means how you and I act and we're all a bunch of idiots. He's here. We talked for two hours and 20 minutes about traffic. And even I wouldn't do that to you. So this is a little bit different than a typical Buckeye talk. We had a long, free-flowing conversation. Too long. Nobody wants to listen to a traffic conversation for two hours and 20 minutes. So I cut this up a little bit into segments. When we talked about this and we talked about that, the things that we will cover here. First off, just a little bit of driver behavior. Then we talk about Ohio State traffic, how he has been used or not used by Ohio State to make good traffic patterns around games, what he thinks about Ohio State traffic. So if you have no interest in traffic generally and you think, why does Doug do this? Why does he do this to us? That's a specific football thing that actually might affect your life. Then we talk about people who leave gaps at stoplights. We talk about roundabouts. We talk about merging when there's construction. Do you stay in the closing lane right until the end or you do you get over early? This is one where people have very strong opinions on what you should do. We talk about why traffic pops up for no reason at all. We talk about what maybe you can do as an individual driver to try to make traffic not quite as bad. Can your behavior affect things? And then at the end, there's... I'm going to, we actually talked about it in the middle. I'm putting it at the end. It's a conversation about autonomous vehicles, robot cars, the future, what there may or may not be there and what it might look like and when it might get here. So that's more theoretical. The, the, the stuff at the beginning is like, man, this stuff drives me crazy, which is why I wanted to do this. So this sprung from the fact that Nathan, Stephen, and I had a conversation about how you're supposed to park. Do you pull in or back in? And there were very strong opinions among the three of us, and they were very strong opinions expressed by, by tech subscribers. If you think, this is one of these things, you think, oh man, people really care about what the Buckeyes should have done on third down in the Michigan game, wait until you ask them about traffic. So it's the offseason still, 
We have football things coming soon. This is a little divergent. Divergent. This is a little something off to the side. And maybe you think it's interesting. Maybe you don't. If you don't, skip it. And we'll get you back with football tomorrow. If you do, great. You can be listening to a podcast about traffic while you drive in your car. And maybe, 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 maybe we can have a little more grace with each other out on the road. Maybe we can learn something like, hey, I thought I was doing this right. There, It's not that I'm wrong, but maybe there's a better way that if everybody did this, traffic wouldn't be quite as bad. And uh, if not, it's just a way to maybe reinforce that you're smart. Everybody else is an idiot because, frankly, that's what we all think on the road, right? So we talk about that idea first. I did survey tech subscribers about how good of a driver they think they are compared to everybody else. We'll do that briefly, and then we very quickly get into the Ohio State traffic discussion and then all those other things that I said we were going to discuss. He's Dr. Benjamin Koifman. We even had somebody who listens to this podcast who said, hey, man, I, I had him in class. How crazy is that? So... We really, we could not be more grateful for his time. And one of the things he said that I thought was interesting is he compared traffic to water, that you sort of study traffic the way you study water, except water molecules, you know how they're going to act. And water molecules, there's so many gazillions of them, you have a large data set to study, right? With drivers, even when you're looking at traffic for a couple hours, it's still a pretty small data set of individual cars. It's thousands, not millions. And those people are acting in their own individual interests. So they aren't just flowing flowing like water does. So that's a comparison he made right off the top when we started talking is traffic is like water, but then it's also different in some ways. Here we go. And then also with drivers, they're going to do their best to outsmart you anyway. So it makes studying traffic really difficult. And also water is not filled with idiots. So that also is, is part of the uh, part of the thing here. Right. Because everybody I'm not here. I'm not here to nine, offend. Nine times out of ten, an idiot is just someone you don't understand. Buckeye talk. That is very <laughs> deep. I would wear a T-shirt that says that. I, I did a survey, and I want to – this idea, this is why I think traffic and the discussion of traffic is so interesting, because I asked uh, our tech subscribers, Ben, I said, how good of a driver are you on a scale of 1 to 10, and how good do you think the rest of the drivers, drivers in the world are on a scale of 1 to 10? And people rated themselves, on average, an 8.07, and they rated everybody – yeah, and they rated everybody else a 4.78. So everybody yeah. thinks they're good and everybody else is terrible, but I assume I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but that has to affect how people view traffic because most people think I'm doing it right, everybody else is doing it wrong, and I imagine that can be a bad way maybe to get through the world. Well, so... <laughs> I'm a 10, by the way. I'm a 10. Of course. And I think everybody else is a 3, so like I'm well, even worse. So there's... Yeah. You think you're a 10. You think you're a 10, Ben. You're an expert. You are a professor of traffic. When you get out on the road, don't you think you're a 10? Oh, well, I'm I'm <laughs> Um, no, I'm I'm more sporting about it. I I drive oh. a little tiny, you know, I think it's a 2 horsepower car. And so that that brings more of an art to it where it's like you got to think a minute ahead of yourself. Because it's like, yeah. well, I can do zero to 60 in about three minutes. <laughs> oh, wow. That's it's like a driving well, lawnmower out on the road. That's interesting. Yes, but it works. So now there's really, if you turn that 
around, what it really speaks to is differences in drivers. And that's really where a lot of the inefficiencies in traffic comes from because people are people and they inherently behave differently. If we all behave the same, it would be pretty boring. Uh, But with traffic, you have differing styles. If everyone drove at exactly the same speed, that would be hugely efficient. Um, And that may someday happen with these autonomous vehicles. But right here, right now, generally speaking, it's healthy to assume that, you know, one is correct, at least in uh, situations where there is there is no easily definable correct. So with my driving style, I'm going to be biased to say, yeah, my driving style is among the best. And in this context, those people's driving styles differ from mine. And so from the individual perspective, yes, they are lousy drivers. But from the throughput or safety or whatever your measure is, really the issue is that you've got varying behavior. And so it's it's the differing behavior that causes some of the disturbances. It probably causes a lot of the disturbances. And so it isn't really driver A or driver B. Driver A is better than driver B or vice versa. It's that driver A is different than driver B. People are asking this about your expertise, and they are wondering if Ohio State and the athletic department at Ohio State has ever enlisted your expertise for dealing with football game day traffic. Uh, text subscriber from the 917 area code. Has Ohio State or the police department ever gotten you involved with structuring a system for getting cars out of the Ohio State parking lots after football games? Then we had a similar question from a text subscriber in the 440. Does Ohio State Athletics tap into Dr. Koifman's expertise for football parking and traffic? And if not, why not? And if so, do they review it as the season progresses and implement tweaks as needed? That's from Tammy in the 440. They ever, they ever call you, Doc? Say, hey. We got 120,000 people coming on Saturday. What should we do? So I shouldn't admit this, but they're smarter than me. (laughs) What? They're good at they are they They, good at it? They are crazy amazing. So uh, I've met with them, I've talked with them, and I've got a few suggestions. Uh, but my concerns are mostly with the lesser events like uh, concerts and maybe the occasional basketball game. So, but for the football games, they are amazing. So a freeway off ramp without a traffic light on it could maybe handle 1800 vehicles per hour. So we'll be generous and call it 2000 vehicles per hour. Okay. How the heck do you get 120,000 fans off of freeways where you can only drop 2,000 vehicles per hour. That's 50 hours if you only had one freeway uh, off yeah. And the freeway is where traffic can move fast. You know, when, when you think about like driving on an arterial street, you know, when you're traveling the speed limit, maybe if it's a fast street, you're going 30, you know, 45 miles an hour or around campus, it's anywhere between 20 and 30 miles per hour. But that's when you're moving. If you take the time you're moving and the time you're stopped, your speed on an arterial, if you're lucky, might be 20 miles an hour. So they've got a playbook that is several inches thick uh, that they use for the football games, and they vary it. Uh, If it's a noon game versus if it's a 
you know, 8 p.m. game. They they actually do things differently. And so they've got it planned out. So they forecast and, you know, they know how many tickets are sold. So that also varies what they're doing. But then their playbook, it's like they this many hours ahead of the game, we close this road. This many hours ahead of the game, we turn this road into a one-way street. And, you know, they take these roads that have... So, like, Lane Avenue has two lanes each direction. So, in theory, that should be a capacity of 3,000 vehicles per hour. And so they, they take this network and they squeeze every little ounce of capacity out of it. So they take these two-way streets and they turn them into a one-way street and they override the traffic signals, you know, and that's, you know, again, and so much of it comes down to vehicles per hour. You know, how do you get more vehicles through in your short period in whatever amount of time? And when you have a thing like a football game where before the game, everyone's heading in, after the game, everyone's heading out, what can you do with this network that's wasn't designed for this type of traffic flow? And they do just amazing things with it. it it's, you know, that's, again, a miracle of, you know, how this all works. And so these people really know the network. So this is, you know, the parking people, the police, they've got also input from the city of Columbus, and they have this just amazing dance that they've figured out over the years. And that that is actually one of the cases where you can do a bit of trial and error because, you know, the football game traffic is going to be similar time and again. And so they they also debrief, you know, if something goes wrong or something doesn't go as expected, you know, okay, what went wrong, where, how? And then also, because it's, it is the same traffic pattern every time, they can tweak it and adjust it and go, well, if we do it a little bit differently this way, and if you do that three or four times, it's like, okay, that didn't help or that helped a lot. Um, maybe let's go further. It does help, right? It's a it's a major city. They're you know between three fifteen and two seventy and seventy one and two seven you know seventy six seventy is not far out there. There's a lot of entrance points. You go to other places, smaller Big Ten towns, and you can feel like am I I'm driving on the one lane road for four miles to get into the stadium here? This is insane. <laughs> but I always have thought that as as frustrating as it can be, and and I understand that. I mean, it's just generally frustrating. I I thought that Ohio State seems to do a pretty good job with this stuff. And so, like, we did have another question uh, then about night game traffic from the five one six. People always talk about how night games later in the season, like in November, would pose an issue. Is there any impact from a logistics standpoint that you would balk at? It. it I don't want to put words in your mouth, but. You know, there's all kinds of things you have to consider. I've always thought for Ohio State games, I like the 330 games the best because it feels like it, it's the largest window for people to get there. If it's a noon game, everybody's trying to get there at the same time. If it's a if it's a night game, actually the night games sometimes aren't that bad because you have all day to get there and some people get there way early in the day. But anyway, I think the noon games are the toughest because it's a compacted it's a compacted time to arrive. Is there anything about night games and traffic at night that would concern you about Ohio State? Or basically, are you saying that Ohio State can kind of handle whatever is thrown at it from a scheduling standpoint because they've been through this so much and because they do have access points? So if you look at it strictly in terms of traffic, it's basically a hurricane. Uh, But you know it's coming. In in the hurricane analogy, the uh, OSU traffic management folks live in the worst, you know, the hurricane alley of Florida in terms of traffic in Columbus. Yeah. And so they know it's coming and each type of game has its own pattern. And that's why they respond differently to the different types of games. 
uh, or a different timing of the game and who the opponent is. So um, Michigan might generate a few more vehicles than Kent State would uh, for the game. Uh, so, right. And so they, they've got that down as best they can. And yes, you know, somewhere like Purdue or wherever where it's like, okay, you don't even have a network of roads really to speak of. Um, so yeah, I, I speak no ill of, you know, college towns, but you don't no, have the redundancy of roadways yeah. that you do in Columbus. They are what they are. But like when you're sitting, you know, there's enough big 10 cities where it's like, I'm going to the game. It's like, what do you do? It's like, well, you got to get off here. You got to go down a mile and a half. You go past this gas station, you go through this neighborhood and you're like, what are you talking about? And that Ohio state is like, get on 315 and get off at lane Avenue, basically. Right. Or come down 71 and get anyway. And we'll take our first break there when we come back. Specific questions about driving, merging, roundabouts, gaps on Buckeye Talk with Dr. Benjamin Koifman. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right. We got some very specific, specific, specific questions. I have no idea why they put that traffic light in. They're idiots. No, sorry. Yeah. No, that's, I'm just going to cut that out and then just drop that in throughout the podcast. Uh, but I'm going to start with mine because this is my main thing. And I didn't get a ton of questions about this, but I did ask people about it. It's about people leaving large gaps between them and the car in front of them at a traffic light that you'll look and it's like, there's somebody sitting over there and there's like a two car gap between them or a full car length. And to me, if you are leaving a gap, you're making a line that should be, if the line of traffic should be X when there are 10 cars at a light, if everybody leaves a car length, now it's two times X. Why? But I've also had people say, well, then you can accelerate and start moving better. I hate gaps. I hate leaving a gap. I am on the person's bumper in front of me because I want to take up the least amount of space possible at a traffic light. I asked people what they did. What do you do at a light? How much of a gap do you leave? 68% said I leave a slight gap on purpose, maybe half a car length. Only 19% said I don't leave a gap at all. That's me. And 13% said I leave a large gap a car length or more. And those 13% are constantly tempting me to beep and scream at them. I can't wrap my head around a more than a car length at a light. What's the answer? What's the answer? What do you do in your little car? Why wouldn't you take up all the available space? I'm sorry. This is my number one thing. It's really the only reason I want to have you on. It's my number one thing. What is the answer? Gaps at stoplights. I'm sorry. But this is what traffic you're this is I'm sure you and your colleagues after the, the, the convention sit around and have a beer and it's like, man, people go nuts about traffic, don't they? This is not <laughs> new to you. My face is red. This is how people talk about traffic. What's the right gap? Well, in my little car, I just drive under all those big cars in front of me. See, and I, I knew like, you <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm the first one out. Uh, yeah. so okay, let, let let me savor these last few seconds where you still like me. Okay. Oh my God. Enough of that. Let's get on to pissing you off. No. So it, it's, uh, in many cases, it probably doesn't matter. 
So having said that, you know, I'm already mad. Does it matter? Already made me mad. Well, because to me, it matters well, immensely. Okay. 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 This is not going to well, go well. I'm nervous. Well, no. So a big p- part of traffic is waiting. Yeah. You know, in the last couple of years, I've taken on, I've, I've been assigned a course, you know, that is sort of the, the highway capacity manual, which is, you know, this is, you know, the, the design standards for how you design a roadway and such. And I've really, I've now started, you know, I start the semester in that class and I say, okay, as a traffic engineer, one of the things you're going to do is to take lives. You're not going to take an entire life, but you're going to take lifetime in the form of a minute here and a minute there. So a traffic signal is a necessary evil. If you had stops, if you had no control, you get, you know, one car every 10 seconds. If you have a stop sign, you'll get one car every three or four seconds. If you have a traffic signal when the light is green, you're going to get one car every two seconds. And so time per vehicle, you flip that over and that gives you vehicles per hour. So the smaller amount of time per vehicle, the more throughput you're going to have. And so at that middle of that intersection is the most valuable piece of real estate because you've got these two roads that need to use it. So the traffic queuing for the signal, what really matters is can you deliver the demand when the light is green? And now this is where what you're seeing with these gaps is your spatial storage efficiency. And if you've got long blocks, uh, so the queue never backs up and blocks anything, then it doesn't really matter if the traffic's stored efficiently or not in space while it's stopped. But you've got left turn lanes, you've got right turn lanes, or so forth, mm-hmm. and if the traffic backs up and blocks those, then you're causing other people misery unnecessarily. So Agree. Um, okay, that was good. Yes, yes. So agree. So, and this is true whether it's at intersections or on the freeway. Uh, so when the game day traffic backs up for the exit ramp, uh, to Lane Avenue, someone who's going through and it's like, I'm driving to Cincinnati. I got to get all the way over to the left. Uh, I'm not going to the game, but you get a mile or two upstream of the Lane Avenue off-ramp and the congestion spread across all of the lanes. So that poor person driving to Cincinnati who has nothing to do with the game, they get caught in the crossfire. Mm-hmm. And that's just unavoidable. One other thing, if this were an ideal world, you know, it's like, okay, the people who aren't going to the bottleneck, let's just let them get past. And so that's one of the small blessings you can do in the world. Don't get closer than you feel comfortable getting close. Always drive safe. If if you're driving a large vehicle, you give more reaction time, you give more space. Drive safely, take safe spacing and so forth. And then on the one hand, pulling up close to the car ahead of you, will potentially allow a couple extra cars to get to the left turn lane or the right turn lane or so forth. Now, the... Here comes a butt. Here comes a butt. Well, I, hear, I know there's a so butt coming. Okay. I can't... A gap is a gap is a gap is a gap. It's how you use it. You know, it's, it's not the size. It's how you use a gap. Um, <laughs> so if you use a gap to actually get moving at the same moment the vehicle ahead of you moves you might actually be able to deliver more throughput when the light turns green. But if you start, if you don't use that gap, so if the car ahead of you starts and you still start at the same time you would have started if you had a short gap, then that's inefficient because you then also have that gap that wastes that little bit of time. So okay, 
So a traffic signal is a deliberate bottleneck where we say no one can get through while the light's red. And then when the light's green, we want the traffic to flow through at the highest possible flow. So I have a couple things that are very specific traffic things that people were very interested about in the here and now that I that I really want to ask you about. And one is roundabouts. And I got multiple questions on <laughs> roundabouts. Some people like them, some people hate them. In the traffic world, when you and your traffic buddies get together, are roundabouts good or roundabouts bad? If you want to have fun, confusing drivers, go up to Detroit. <laughs> you know, have, have you ever seen a Michigan left turn? Oh, is that uh, where you have to go right and then straight to go there, left? There's that one or the you got to go through the intersection and then you got to make a left turn and then a right turn. So there are these yeah. goofy designs that from a traffic engineering standpoint, it's like, oh, that is so efficient. Oh, from the user standpoint, it's like, what on earth are they thinking? But really with roundabouts, are they good or bad? They're both. And it's really a matter of finding the right tool for the demand. So from a user standpoint, it definitely takes a little, you know, if you've never driven through a roundabout before, the first time you see one, it's going to be freaky. But it's really sort of, you know, if, if they're deployed correctly, it's the right tool for the right demand. So you've got residential intersections where it would make sense to have always stop signs. So at a residential intersection, usually you're only going to have one or two cars pull up at any given moment, and you've got to watch for pedestrian and bicycle traffic and so forth. So everyone stops, service at the intersection costs the people five or 10 seconds delay in their cars. But that's also a good thing because you want to encourage those People who are using the residential streets, if they're not close to their destination, you want to make sure that the arterials are the faster way to go anyway. But then you get to the intersection of two large streets, or maybe a minor street with a large street, and if you've got a lot of demand, you want a traffic signal. Because again, when the light turns green, you can get in each lane one vehicle every two seconds. And that's about what, you know, if you had just a straight road flowing at capacity, you'd get one vehicle about every two seconds in a given lane. So when a, when the light is green, the traffic signal basically is like as if there's no intersection there at all for the approach. The roundabout is sort of a middle ground. So when demand's low, you have to slow down a little bit for the curve, but you don't have to stop. And, yeah. you know, so in the Columbus area where I live, Dublin has really embraced the roundabout. It's like, okay, they got roundabouts everywhere in the real du in Dublin, Ireland. So we'll put roundabouts everywhere in Dublin, Ohio. But you drive through there, and I personally think it's nice where it's like, okay, I got to slow down a little bit for the intersections, but this is almost like when I get a green wave on the arterials, where it's just I don't have to stop. And your classic traffic control in the U.S. would be always stop or full traffic signal. Well, your ultimate control would be grade separation where you build a bridge. So you build a bridge, you've done away with the intersection. Mm. As long as you have the intersection, the traffic signal is the highest capacity control you can have. And all stop signs, you know, having always stop signs is the lowest. You'll oftentimes have an arterial and minor streets where the minor streets have stop signs and the arterial just has a right of way. Uh, so from the arterial standpoint, that's great because the arterial always gets a priority in the cross streets can only, only slip in when they can. But if you have so much demand on the arterial, 
that the cross streets can never get in, then you've got what's called traffic signal warrants. And you can say, oh, there's too much demand here. We have to put in a traffic signal. So the roundabouts in you know, more suburban developments where you have, you know, where you might have a quarter mile between intersections or major intersections, then you can put roundabouts there. And you're, if your demand's high enough that stop signs would be burdensome, but low enough that a traffic signal might only help one hour out of the day, the roundabout becomes a very attractive option. Now, it consumes more land than a normal intersection would, but installing full traffic signalization, that's, you know, that's kind of like getting a dog where it's like, okay, it costs a lot. Well, it's worse than a dog because it costs a lot to install it in the first place. You can probably get a puppy for free if you've got friends, but then it costs a lot of money to maintain it and keep it timed and so forth. So a, a roundabout or traffic circle, my, my British friends would be cringing at me because there's a very distinct difference between a roundabout and a traffic circle. Good thing they aren't listening to this, right? They drive on the wrong side of the road, so like they can cram it. No yeah. offense, to them. and 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 they and they don't uh, know how to play football, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, so I think roundabouts more good than bad too. Like I think I, uh, it's better than sitting at a light when there's nobody coming. So I think people get confused on roundabouts, but I think the more there are, the more we all get used to them. So that's that's good in the end, more good than bad. Other topic I want to ask you about that people are very fired up about when you are on the highway. And because of construction or whatever reason, mostly because of construction and your lane is ending and you're getting a warning that your lane is going to end in a mile or half a mile. When should you get over? Should you get over right away? Should you kind of feel it out or should you go up to the very end and merge at the last moment? And I did ask people this. This is a very controversial issue. When you're on the highway, I said, which one do you do? 56% of the people said, I prepare to merge, but I don't do it right away. 33% said, I get over as soon as I can. And only 11% said, I wait until the end and get over as late as possible. <laughs> and then I asked the, the second question, which is, if someone is merging late, do you let them in or do you try to block them and punish them? And 52% said they block and punish and don't let in. And only 48% said they let in. I go to the end because the road is there. Why would we not use every inch of available space until it's gone? So the world where the whole left lane is empty for three quarters of a mile because everybody already got over. And yet I'm the jerk for driving up until the end and using the road, which is legally abundantly there. And then I'm a jerk drives me crazy. And the only thing worse than that is when the tractor trailers get in the far lane and block that lane from being used and then eliminate half a mile of roadway because they don't want anybody getting the jump on anybody when everybody, in my opinion, should be using every available inch of road space at all times and then zipper merging, boom, 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 boom. And if we did that, everything would work out much better. What should we do? What's the right answer? I'm trying to be open-minded. I'm trying to be open-minded. What's the right answer? Well, lane change maneuvers are the killer because when a vehicle is changing lanes, it momentarily is consuming two lanes of capacity. Uh, I, I could go on for 10 minutes about lane change maneuvers. So I'll, I'll, I'll set that one aside. So this is definitely a cultural thing and ultimately gets back to your very first question about 
80 for, you know, people say I'm an eight and everyone else is a four in terms of driving. If everyone did the same thing as me, then it would work, uh, is really what, you know, so it's the mix of the drivers that want to merge early and the mix of the drivers who want to merge late. You know, when you think about it, it's like, I'm going to cut to the end of that line and then cut in. You've just delayed everyone in the lane that you've cut in by one spot, by about two seconds. So you've saved yourself a huge amount of delay. And by cutting in late, you've now caused two seconds of delay to each person behind you, which if that's 100 cars, uh, you've just transferred 200 seconds of delay from you to them. Now, in the dog-eat-dog world, uh, sucks for them, good for you. In the universe, the total delay probably hasn't changed much. You know, so it's, again, the homogeneity, the, the how similar the behavior is amongst drivers probably really is a de- determining factor. Now, I grew up in the Midwest. I, you know, studied out on the West Coast uh, in a big city, metropolitan area of San Francisco. And there, they they have so much congestion. You, you know how you have breakdown lanes along the side of the roads here? There, mm-hmm. they at some spots, they did away with those. And it's just like, your left lane, you've got like the left lane, you got two feet, and then there's a concrete barrier. So, of course, from that perspective, it's like, yes, you go all the way to the end and then maybe even a little bit further before you cut over. And then, you know, I had a cousin who was living in Kentucky at that time. I came and visited and I come around a corner on the freeway and it's like the right lane is just stopped, 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 stopped. And there's a sign that says five miles ahead, left lane closed. I'm like looking at that left lane going, I totally want to be in there right now. My every cell in my body is telling me that's where I belong. But I respected the local custom and just gripped the steering wheel and I just stayed in my lane and did as the locals did. From a traffic operations perspective, my first thought is, if all you're worried about is maximizing your throughput, actually having the drivers compete right at that merge point possibly is maximizing your throughput because when you get the vehicles as yes. close as possible... Yes! Oh, Maximize the throughput. That's all I care about. But oh, it's God. a tragedy. It's a tragedy because you get them really tight together... You know, they're bunched up real together. But then once there's no risk of someone cutting in front of them from the lane to the left, and then, you know, these drivers who don't normally drive two feet away from a big chunk of concrete on their left, they become more cautious and then they space out. So they get that long, that long gap ahead of them that you hate so much. And guess what? That long gap, 60 miles an hour, whatever the speed limit is with a short gap, takes less time than 60, mi- 60 miles an hour with a long, long gap. So if you get tight and then the drivers relax as they get after they get past, that becomes your bottleneck, is that point where they relax. And this, again, that's what makes us all so difficult. Ultimately, 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 probably it doesn't matter because the real determining factor is probably after you've entered the single lane. I know, I, I'm... Dull, boring, and just no, look. no, There's... no. It, it. I. I hope it is easing some minds because well, I mean the one thing that would be advantageous for everybody is just relax, right? Yeah. If everybody just chilled out a little bit on the road and tried to look out for each other and not didn't have road rage and didn't scream at everybody and tried to have a little grace and if well, somebody needs a hey whatever that probably would be good for everybody. So if we think about it. 
You're helping us think about other people on the road, which most of the time, none of us do. So maybe 10 years ago, they rebuilt 315 going past campus. And they did something really interesting and that I rarely see. And they, they like basically, they dropped it down to two lanes. They kept the off-ramps open, but they closed all the on-ramps in that section. And that was brilliant because that really alleviated the uh, drivers relaxing because the drivers exiting the roadway reduces the demand. So what a lot of even traffic engineers don't think about is, you know, so on I-71 here in Columbus, at some point you go from four lanes to three. Upstream of that lane drop where you have four lanes, you've got more demand than can pass at a point where it's three lanes. But now everywhere in that three-lane section is potentially a bottleneck because anytime someone wants to change lanes or someone wants to enter the freeway, they can only do so by delaying someone. And so when they did that, keep the off-ramps open and close the on-ramps, no one can come in and create that little bit of delay. And so you had the highest demand right at the start, but then you got to the first off-ramp and your demand dropped enough to ensure that minor perturbations don't cause congestion. You know, so have you ever driven on the roadway? It's like, I'm in this horrible queue. That gets a little bit better, gets a little bit better. Then before you know it, you're freely flowing and you never passed a bottleneck and you never... Yes, yes, hold on, hold on a second. I have a question about that, that I wanted, this is, this is Craig from LA. Traffic jams can be caused by a lot of things, understandably, accidents, rush hour, merging, et cetera. But what about those times when there's a jam, you get to the end of the jam, everything clears up and you're smooth sailing and there was nothing. How and why does that happen? I pray Dr. Koifman can help answer this decades long conundrum <laughs> I've had. Craig from LA where traffic is a way of life. This is just what you're talking about. What is that? So it's the beauty of fluid dynamics in action. So I almost lost my life doing this, in fact. I was driving through Chicago with my wife late at night, and they were rebuilding the Eisenhower Expressway. And so at night, they brought it down to one lane of traffic. And so we get like to the south side, you know, you cross the Indiana border into Illinois, and somewhere about there, we hit the backup. And you literally came to a stop, and you sat there for three minutes. You moved forward 20 feet, sat for three minutes, moved forward 20 feet. After about 10 minutes of this... My wife, God bless her soul, did not act on the natural instinct to kill me. Mm. And so we, we suffered through that for an hour or so, and we got to the first on-ramp. And then instead of stopping for a minute, we stopped for 30 seconds before we moved up. Then we got past the next on-ramp, and we stopped for 10 seconds. And then we get past a couple more on-ramps, and we'd only stop occasionally. And then as we get to actual inside the city limits, maybe we're going... 30 miles an hour, but occasionally stopping. So what you don't see in that situation is every on-ramp, so when it's down to a single lane, every on-ramp, half the traffic comes from the on-ramp, half the traffic comes from the main line. So upstream of that on-ramp, I get that delay because, you know, if you can carry 2,000 vehicles downstream of that on-ramp, upstream of maybe you only can carry 1,000. And so I have to wait for all of those vehicles that currently aren't with me. And each time you pass another on-ramp, you're passing that point where now it's like, okay, we now have 80% of the flow that's going to go past a bottleneck. But the people who haven't joined us yet are still consuming that. And that's, again, looking ahead and ahead. So each time you pass an on-ramp, it gets a little bit better, a little bit better. 
and then you pass that point where they add a lane and you're free flowing. And it just happens out of nowhere from your perspective. But if you were to look at a, a map, a speed map of the freeway, you'd see at that point it was green where they added the lane. And then just upstream of it would be just a little hint of yellow. Upstream of that, it would be more yellow than green, and but it would be sort of the same color at that a given location the entire time. So you could look at the speed approaching this, and where the three-lane section turned to four, you always had free flow speeds. So say it's 65 miles an hour. A mile upstream, you'd always have 60 miles an hour. Upstream of that, maybe it's 40. Upstream of that, maybe it's 20. But when you're in 20-mile-an-hour traffic, then you've got stop-and-go traffic. So it's a spatial process, and you're driving through it. Mm. Now, with that, say you're in the 40-mile-an-hour area. If you're changing lanes, in terms of driving, again, each time you change lanes, you're momentarily consuming capacity, twice as much capacity because you're occupying two lanes. And uh, when you're doing that, you're also coupling the lanes, so potentially you get the worst of the two lanes and everyone behind you is then subject to that. The nice thing is traffic is you know, self-healing and it will close up the gaps that you've created from that lane change maneuver. So when you change lanes, everyone behind you when you left go, this is great. I get two seconds savings of travel time and everyone in the lane you moved into, it's like, oh, I hate you. You've just caused me two seconds of a delay. But in the big picture, there's enough space for traffic to sort itself out so that your changing lanes doesn't really cost any capacity. But what it does is it creates a disturbance. And those disturbances from changing lanes is probably part of what gives rise to stop and go traffic. So mm. the average speed would be 20 miles an hour, but because people are changing lanes, okay, you have to speed up, you have to slow down. Now the stop and go traffic is what's truly miserable. If if you could go a constant 20 miles an hour when you're queued, you know, that's where, you know, autonomous vehicles could really shine where it's like, okay, you could smooth out those stupid little disturbances. Um, you know, if the cars could talk to each other, it's like, oh, I've got a stop wave coming in this lane, but the other lane's clear, move a few vehicles over, uh, you smooth it out, everyone still goes 20 miles an hour. So you're moving slow, but you're not stop and go. And stop and, you know, slow and go, stop and go traffic is bad in so many ways because when you're going on a freeway, even if you're going 20 miles an hour, you don't expect to have to stop soon. So with experience, you learn, okay, maybe I need to keep in a little bit extra spacing because traffic's slow, but that's still, you know, stop waves are very dangerous. You know, it's the safety, you know, when the traffic slows down on the freeway, your safety issues go up because, you know, it's that difference in speeds that, you know, increase your probability and risk from accidents. So the slowdowns are a safety issue, and then the speed-ups are emissions and fuel consumption because a car accelerating... So a car going at constant speed uses a lot less fuel than a car that's slowing down, speeding up. And fuel consumption, for a lot of the pollutants, fuel consumption and pollutants are you know matched. It's like if you burn a gallon of fuel, you will produce this much emissions. Uh, it doesn't matter what the car is doing. So you've got you know, speeding up, the acceleration uses more fuel and thus also produces more emissions. So if you could go a constant speed, that would increase safety and improve fuel efficiency. So this question that this is, uh, this is a very interesting thing because people are interested in this. What can I do? 
614, can an individual positively impact congestion with the way they drive? How? And I think it sounds like maybe the big picture thing here is I don't trust robot cars, but if we all drove a little bit more like a robot, that might be good. Don't change lanes too much. Don't hit your brakes too much. Try to maintain a constant speed and we'd all help out. So certainly if you need a safe distance, you know, if you need a little bit more distance, take that greater distance. You know, if if your reaction time, if you are not that video gamer who like is like, no, I need to get the $40,000 computer so that I can have a hair trigger or whatever. If you're not that person, it's okay to take a larger space. You know, you might get there 10 seconds later because five more people cut in front of you than you could have prevented. But that's still a lot earlier than if you got into an accident. You know, having a little bit of tolerance for jerks cutting you off, swear at them, make sure your windows are up and swear at them very loudly. But there's, you know, having a little bit of tolerance for people cutting you off. You know, they are evil people when they cut you off. You're totally right about that. But just have confidence that they're going to be the ones who get into the accident or hopefully the universe, they'll get their due in the universe. But by being aggressive, you potentially make things worse. If you need to be in a lane for an exit or a diverge or whatever, definitely get to the lane that you need in, need to be in. If you want to be in the fast lane, cool. If the fast lane is, you know, change lanes as you need to, but resist the urge to bounce back and forth between lanes or weave through traffic. You know, so that's like, you know, the Teslas that aggressively find, you know, the autonomous Teslas that built into their programming aggressively find the fastest lane they're going to be weaving back and forth through traffic. Now, they're going to do it slower than that crazy driver, you know, in the hot rod who's like, okay, I'm passing up all these slow people in the fast lane because there's a little gap in the right lane and then zipping back and forth across lanes. You know, so a study, there's a study I want to do, have been wanting to look at this for some time. I haven't done this yet, but just from my own commute and from driving around, there are places where, in this part of the roadway, the right lane is going to actually be faster when it's congested. And then I know after I pass this point, the left lane's going to be faster. As a regular commuter, if you know that, you follow that flow. You know, certainly take, you know, if you know all the time the right lane's faster in this part and the left lane's faster in that part, don't cut people off. But, you know, if you know that, use, you know, you're that commuter who drives that route every day, exploit the knowledge you have and get over to the right spot. If you're a not familiar driver with that spot and you're driving through, it's like, oh, this right lane has been passing me up regularly for the last five minutes. You do run the risk of going, okay, I'm going to hop over there. Oh, I've just discovered why it was moving fast. Mm. Because all the regular commuters know that as you get to this off ramp, it backs up. And so they zip through, but then they move over. So when you're in the queue, the congested traffic, changing lanes, Worst thing it will normally do is lead to disturbances that you want to minimize. Now, when you get to that point, though, where traffic is freely flowing, there, if you want to just do a good deed for the universe, you know, if changing lanes doesn't really get you much, maybe don't change lanes. Because there, okay. where when you get to the narrowest spot on the network, if you change lanes and you momentarily take twice the capacity, uh, you wind up with 
this uh, another tragedy, which is the cost of changing lanes, you delay everyone behind you. But the lane you left, because you're already going free speed, the people behind you can't close the gap. But perhaps if it's a long stretch of roadway, perhaps someone from, a, you know, maybe the fact that you've created that hole actually creates an opportunity for someone on an on-ramp downstream to enter. Ultimately, you know, definitely resist the urge to change lanes frequently. Beyond that, probably the system will take care of itself. And this, and this is where, you know, you come full circle and the traffic engineers have to design for this is what people are going to do on their own accord. And so we have to anticipate that. And then we sit there and we pull our hair out going, if I could only tell the drivers, 60% of you stay in the right lane, 40% of you move to mm. the left lane. So you can't do that. And that's one of the potential promises of autonomous vehicles is, but again, the people who are developing the autonomous vehicles right now aren't thinking about the coordination so much as the individual vehicle. But if you have all the individual vehicles out there that are able to talk to each other, hopefully down the road, someone would go, oh, if we get them talking, then they can move more, more organically, more efficiently and so forth. All right. So more good traffic talk there. Last break. When we come back, this is mostly going to be about theoretical stuff driverless cars where are we go and what's the future and how will that affect traffic for the rest of your lives next with dr benjamin koifman on buckeye talk so you, you keep hearing about automated cars how long as john q public you know i know you're the interviewer you should be asking the questions but when did people start thinking about automated cars like seriously thinking about it guess what what do you think uh a hundred years ago you're actually pretty close so it was yeah, 1934, New York's World Fair, I believe, is when they started talking about automated cars. And they said, oh, yeah, they'll be I here. I go to Disney a lot, and Disney always has, like, stuff about the future. Walt Disney was always talking about the future. So I feel like I was just, I was just somewhere the other – I was just somewhere recently, and it it's some, was like something from the 40s or whatever, like projecting mm -hmm. what it would be like in 1990. And that's where people were, right? That's that's yeah. where the mindset was. I think people in the 30s probably think we're behind right now. They're yeah. like, how, well, is, how are robots not piloting your flying cars by now? Well, and you got to keep in mind the 30s were before you even had, you know, so there were a few expressways like what we'd call a freeway, uh, but there weren't many uh, in the 30s. With the automated vehicles, even in 1934, they were saying, oh, this is 10 or 20 years away. And mm -hmm. so they've been 10 or 20 years away for 90 years. So when I was in school, we had the civil engineers. You know, one of my civil engineering professors was, had literally had a sign on his door, no computers. And then we had these electrical engineers who were like, okay, we're going to automate traffic and then all of our problems will go away. Everything's solved. It's like, no, <laughs> if you automate the pipe, it's still a pipe and it's still subject to the physics of the pipe. And even to this day, it's like if those civil engineers and those electrical engineers would have been able to talk to each other, they could have probably, you know, changed the world. And they they did change the world, but they could have really, really, really changed the world. I've actually got a foot in both domains. So, hey, I'm here. Well, but that also would be a whole long, lengthy discussion. Yeah. But let's let's just get to driverless. Could we just get to driverless well, cars? Because well, people are people are asking about about this kind of thing. Oh, so, well, so, no, I, I don't want to jump ahead with the driverless cars. No, I, we I can jump. For a second, just pause. Well, there are people who right now are saying, okay, we're going to come up with these driverless cars and we're going to come to the intersection and the cars are going to negotiate amongst themselves and get through the intersection yeah. however they will and we can get rid of traffic signals. 
that also, remember on the freeways with ramp metering, your challenge is you've got to look many minutes and much great distance down the roadway. And in traffic, you've got to think ahead, look ahead. And with traffic signals, the challenge isn't, if you designed it right, the challenge isn't the individual signal. The challenge is the progression of signals. So if you Mm. time it right, it's like, okay, that first traffic signal you come to, you'll probably have to wait on a red. But this light turns green. If I assume everyone goes at free flow speed, from when this light turns green, I know they're going to get to this light 30 seconds later. If you go back and you say, okay, people arrive randomly at this traffic light. It's got a three-minute cycle, uh, half of which is red. All right, so they've got a 50% chance of arriving on a red. And if they arrive on a red, their expected delay would be half of the red time. So if you've got a 90-second red, if you arrive during red, your expected delay would be half of that, so 45 seconds. And if you arrive randomly, 50% chance during green, 50% during red. So your expected delay across everyone would be 22, 23 seconds of delay for everyone going through that signalized intersection if you arrive randomly. But now the very next intersection, if you know they're going to arrive in 30 seconds after that first one turned green, you could go green for them right away and have no delay. And then the next intersection, the same and the same. So at one intersection, you've got a small battle, but your entire campaign goes across dozens of intersections. And if the stars align, you could have people stop once and then just go sailing through the traffic signals. We've all experienced that. You've been on a, you've been on a city road at a certain time of night and your signal turns green and you can see all the ones as you go, you come to it, it turns green and you get through eight signals and they're all green. You feel like royalty. It's like the world has stopped for you. And I, when that happens to me, I think to myself, my God, what a wonderful country we live in. So I try to appreciate when the signals are timed up. Really? You should say, my God, thank you, Batman. Yes, I do. That's what I'm going to say from now on. I'm going to say, I'm going to engineer who thought of you. I'm going to point up and Dr. Koifman, this one's for you, man. Um, so let's do driverless cars while we're here. We, we got here. We have someone from the 614 says, I own a Tesla, two actually. I love them, but I don't know that the Midwest is ready for driverless cars. My question is, what infrastructure improvements are necessary here to allow for more autonomous and or driverless cars to succeed? Is this realistic in the next two decades? And then there was somebody else sort of asking about what you were saying Do you think at some point this century that all cars will be self-driving and will communicate with each other, eliminating the need for most stop signs and traffic lights and nearly eliminating accidents? That's from Nathan uh, now in the 419. What do you think of that? Like, when are we getting there? What do we have to do to gird ourselves for this reality? And how good is it going to be when we get there, whenever that might be? And by the way, I would not get in a driverless car right now. Would you get in a driverless car right now? Would you right now, tomorrow, get in a driverless car? So um, I have fallen in love with my wife's uh, Subaru that has adaptive cruise control. It's just makes Indiana a pleasure, makes Southern Illinois a pleasure where it's just like, oh, I'm coming up on the slow vehicle. I, you know, I've got my wits about me, but I don't have to be like juggling the, the brake and the gas pedal. So there are definitely these sort of mini steps towards autonomous vehicles that are just 
incredible, makes life so much easier, so much nicer, where it's like, okay, the car, if I come up on a slow vehicle, the car, I don't have to like disengage cruise control and such. So I'm, I'm already, you know, a convert in that regard. But fully autonomous vehicles, what do you want the vehicles to do? There's, well... Not kill me. Not well, kill me is what I want them to do. So the big promise, you know, getting back to just... I know you want to talk about autonomous vehicles, but first let's sort of really hit the crux of the problem with manually driven vehicles. And controlling manually driven vehicles. So remember that corridor of traffic signals where the traffic engineer has to go, this is the speed limit, this light turned green at this time. So the engineer has to design for what they think drivers are going, what they think driver behavior is going to be. And even on the freeway, you know, so we talk about free flow where drivers choose their speed or congestion or they're limited by the vehicle downstream. The real potential of autonomous vehicles is, and this, this even gets back to very start of this, which is 80% of people think they're the best driver and, or, you know, a great driver and 40% think, and they think 40, everyone else is a, a four when they're an eight. Right. Uh, and that really reflects the disharmony between driving styles. And the lack of communication. When you're driving, you have to guess, okay, I'm going to guess that this driver next to me has enough sense that when I turn on my blinker that they'll let me in or that they're going to do, why can you follow at a close spacing? Because you're counting on the driver ahead of you being predictable. You know, having a large gap at a traffic signal might allow you to accommodate for the driver ahead of me being unpredictable. Um, So... With autonomous vehicles, you know, that communicate with each other, in theory, you you know, you could move away from, I assume this driver will do what I want them to do to either I know what they're going to do or they've told me what I can do or we'll negotiate and figure out what will be best for everyone. So that's a promise. But with the large number of vehicles out there, it becomes, you know, just like it's hard to study traffic, it's hard for traffic to interact with each other, because as soon as the cars start talking to each other, well, how far do the cars need to talk to? So if I'm heading this way, Mm. I want to know what's going on potentially half a mile away from me. Someone coming the other direction wants to know what's going on half a mile ahead of them. And as we're coming to the same intersection, that's important. But, you know, most of the people that I want to know about ahead of me, the person coming the other way doesn't care about. And so... Just figuring out that communication mess, you know, that's a huge non-trivial challenge. And then it can be solved, but it's like, okay, how much of, if we do it using conventional uh, airwaves, what do we want to give up? Do we want to give up our cell phones to create the bandwidth for this? Do we want to give up our modems or TV channels or so forth? So that now puts transportation in conflict with all of these other technologies that are other Mm. applications that make our lives well. So you've got those challenges of communication, but now by and large, a Tesla is an autonomous vehicle that doesn't talk to the vehicles around it. And Mm -hmm. there's at least some things, you know, so I'm I'm not up to speed and Tesla is kind of a black, you know, they, 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 
they don't talk about what they do and they, you know, the, the nitty gritty details of how their cars follow another car. So you, you can gather plenty from observation, but the details of exactly what it, they do and how is a black box. But one of the things I've heard is some other vehicles will specifically seek out the fastest lane. And if a small percentage of vehicles are doing that either because the car is, you know, autonomous and doing it on its own or the driver is, you know, aggressive and they always want to be in the fastest lane, probably no big deal. But if all of a sudden all of the drivers are using that strategy, then you get this unstable system where it's like, oh, left lane's moving fast. Let's all get over there. Hey, no one's in the right lane. Let's And that's moving fast. Let's get over there. And then you wind up with this instability that would just grind the freeway to a halt. So an autonomous vehicle, so a lot of the safety benefits from autonomous vehicles, you're, you're seeing that, you know, if you just look at the automotive technology, uh, the current generation of cars are now building in, you know, better pedestrian sensors. So trying to make the world safer for pedestrians, which, you know, there's, on the one hand, as cars have gotten larger in the last couple of decades, that's probably made things safer for the occupants. But the larger the vehicle, you know, the heavier it is already makes it less safe for pedestrians or bicycles around the car. And then I've also heard that with a sedan, you know, a pedestrian's more likely to go up and on top of the car if there is a collision. And that's safer than with an SUV where a pedestrian is more likely to go under the car. And mm. you know, these aren't pleasant things to talk about, but when you think about accidents and so forth, no system is going to be perfect. Uh, you know, so perhaps seatbelts 99 out of 100 times help, but there's probably one in 100 times where no, that didn't help. Um, and so there's, but getting off track from the autonomous vehicles. So autonomy without communication, there's only so far you can go. Um, okay. And communication is, and coordination is critical, but that's, you know, some of that, certainly one of the things that's going to hinder this for a while is it's being driven by industry. And that makes sense because they're the ones who will, you know, can make a profit out of doing this. You know, so having gov, you know, having government come in and say, well, we want the system to do this, but we don't even know what we want the system to do. The hard part is you want to design the system to be what's called system optimal. Uh, so you want it to work across vehicles, but system optimal does mean that there will be some people, you know, it, it, it's different people will pay potentially than those who benefit. And that's a really hard thing to negotiate and figure out how to make it work well and fair and efficient. So a, a lot of the problems aren't so much technical as more of how do we keep it, make it a fair playing field. But on the technical side, we're not all the way there yet, but there's, because it's being driven by industry, it is how do we make it better for the individual car? And that will get us, that will improve things in the short run. But to really get all the way there, we then have to figure out, okay, how do we make it better globally? Um, and that's, it's like everything else. It's it's going to evolve. Things will get better, but some of the problems, you know, haven't even hit the radar yet. Some of the challenges ahead. When do you think, if we think about 
hybrid vehicles at a time when there weren't hybrid vehicles. Then there started to be hybrid vehicles, but it was like Larry David drove one, but you didn't really know anyone who drove a hybrid. And then it was like, oh, no, now my neighbor got a hybrid. And certainly now not everybody has a hybrid, but they're tip- they're totally typical. Then you think about electric cars, right? Fully, right? You plug in your car. It's like, wow, that feels like a thing that only rich people would do or crazy people. <laughs> and now it's like, well, I don't know. My brother-in-law has a plug-in car, whatever. And you see plug-in stations at the mall. And certainly everybody doesn't have one, but it's more typical. It's when you see one, you're not freaking out. Well, when will we get there? With, oh, well, sorry. <laughs> when will we get there with driverless cars? To the point, it's certainly not what everybody has. But we're beyond the point where you are freaking out when you see one, and maybe you know somebody who has one. So whatever percent of the population that is. But that it's not – It's because right now we have – right? You, you have a handful. Oh, there's a YouTube video of a driverless car going through a stop sign. It's like, oh, my God. Well, What's then, it going to be slightly normal? Five years, 10 years, 50 years? When do you think that is? Just an educated guess. You, you, you've got large-scale experiments going on already. So you have cities where there are driver, driverless cars going about their business. I'm not um, going to those cities. I'm not going to those cities. There's, so like not in Columbus, right? Not in Columbus. Not, not in, in Columbus. Columbus. Well, you don't see one in Columbus. Okay. Yes and no. Okay. So What? Um, have you seen one? Have you seen one on the road? Yes. No way. I have never seen a driverless car. I would still freak out. Did you freak I, out? I didn't say a driverless car. I said a driverless vehicle. Oh. I see oh, right. There's still the a person in it. It's not just a car like with a dog in it driving down the road. It's just the person doesn't have to drive. Well, yeah. okay. That's different. So, you know, a big chunk of it is really just hype. So there's these, these you know, all of the automaker companies are saying, okay, we, we're going to give you cars that drive themselves. But if you step back and think about it, something that can go, you know, navigate, you know, traffic signals and freeways and uh, suburban, you know, cul-de-sacs, there are so much crazy things that happen in traffic that to be able to handle it all well, that in terms of autonomous vehicles, I don't think cars are going to be the first place we see it. So, and certainly not cars on public roads. So the things that I would look for, and you actually do see advances in this area. So I would think controlled places like a port where no one's going to be, you know, so like a, a ocean port, like Port of Oakland or uh, Los Angeles or so forth, where you've got a large enclosed area with a lot of trucks moving around, but there's everyone there is an employee who ultimately you can say, do this or do that. So those, you know, I would expect we should see automated ports before we see automated cars everywhere. Uh, what is someplace where no one should be walking around and you should have no cross traffic on a farm? I would expect we would see automated farms where we've got, you know, combines driving around doing their combined thing before we see downtown Columbus filled with autonomous vehicles. And then, and the one, and this is the one that I've seen little mini delivery vehicles all over campus. We've got these robots that are delivering meals oh, to people uh, and not a little field experiment. No robot. Huh? I've seen, I've seen those too. Now you think about it. Yeah. And they freak me out. <laughs> well, and, and, I've seen them and they, they can be really horrible drivers. Like they come up on a, a scooter and then they stop and freak out. And it's like, oh, okay. 
if you can't even deliver a lunch safely at five miles an hour, maybe this is too soon to be talking about going 70 miles an hour. So what is a question that's not being asked here? And that is, what do we want the system to do? So certainly in an alternative design that I would envision would be safer and easier. What if you had an autonomous truck that didn't come out until 10 p.m. and it would just, you'd have this fleet of, you know, right now you've got a fleet of Amazon trucks that go emanating out from the warehouses at 8 a.m. What if instead they went out at 10 p.m., but they were autonomous and they just drive to neighborhoods and park and in the morning their sides would open up and 50 little of these little autonomous delivery vehicles came sputtering out and they drove down the sidewalks at five miles an hour. I'm oh. freaked out. That just freaked me out. I have a <laughs> knot in my stomach thinking about a UPS truck being parked in front of my house and 50 little vehicles popping out of it. Fair enough. Yeah, that, that, that starts oh my God. like a, a giant cave of spiders, maybe. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> I'm going to set it on fire. I'm going to hit it. I'm going to oh. beat it with the baseball bat if it comes in my neighborhood. It's a great idea, but this we have to get ourselves ready for it, though, right? Well, again, it's like, what do we want the system to do? So we think, okay, we have autonomous vehicles. All my problems will go away. Well, if you had an autonomous car, what would you do? I want it to save me time and money. So the main thing to me, the goal is like, I can do things in the car where I don't have to be paying attention to driving. So whether so that's you can do that. being on my phone or watching TV or watching a movie or doing work, right? I guess that that's the only reason for it, right? What would be any other reason for right. having an autonomous but okay. vehicle? So given that reason, so right now, you know, I haven't studied this, but I've heard that if you do a longitudinal study throughout history, human beings sort of settle into about a one hour commute. So in walking times, that meant you would live up to three miles away from work. In modern times, that might mean you live 60 miles from work. If you had a car that drove itself and you were no longer encumbered, you might go, you know, living in Columbus and commuting to Cleveland wouldn't be that bad. Forecasting the future is hard, but forecasting, okay, if we roll out this transportation technology, what's going to happen? And that's you know, you, you, you see this in so many, so many different ways. Humans are not good at sort of valuing the future um, and the future costs and so forth. So that's. Yeah. That's why the earth's on fire. <laughs> yes. So that that's. Not the whole earth, just Canada. Just yeah. Canada. <laughs> so streetcars created, you know, these wedges of land that were not useful that the automobile then capitalized on. And now we went from these spindly little. Uh, urban areas to sort of this everywhere to everywhere cities that just sort of fade from low density to high density. And, you know, if we move to autonomous vehicles where you you can actually do something useful while you're traveling, then that's just going to increase the sprawl probably. You know, there's now, mind you, my idea of an ideal commute is a flight of stairs. You know, so. Yeah. You know, yeah. No, me too. There's so. In that context, a neat concept, and I don't know if this could ever work because most of innovation is really, we have this system. If we do it this little bit differently, things will get better. So like we have a road-based transportation system to do anything different would either be impossible to do on the short term or, or would require decades of focus to say, okay, we want to change directions. And 
that's also a really hard thing to do because in the meantime, even if you could find a society so devoted to, we're going to do things, we're going to go, we're going to make it happen. In the meantime, technological, something, some innovation or change will come. And so, you know, we, we saw that right now with, you know, commercial real estate. After uh, the quarantine, you have a lot of people where it's like, I yeah. like working from home. And so now we've got a lot of vacant office space. So that yeah. also makes forecasting and planning long range. It's like, oh, something weird is ultimately going to happen that will disrupt your plan. So all of that stuff really, it's, it takes years of planning and years of devoted, okay, we are going to have an uncomfortable five or 10 years where we're working towards this, but it's going to take a little while for us to change enough of the world that it works. And so those are hard things to do. And, you know, that is a good thing and a bad thing because hopefully the good ideas endure and it's like, okay, we've been talking about this for 20 years. We need to make this happen because it's just been a good idea versus the, yeah, let's talk about it for two months and then forget about it. Okay. That's an idea you don't want to pursue. So hopefully the good ideas are the ones that sort of stand the test of time. It's like, we've been talking about this for two decades. Let's make it happen. And there's lots, you know, so like the transcontinental railroad, you know, they were talking about that for 50 or a hundred years before they built it. And, you know, these major investments, yes, you want to kick them around for a few years and go, this is something we want to make happen. Now, the flip side of it is once you commit to making it happen, you don't want to then have your build go take twice as long as you said. And it's like, oh, the, the budget's ballooned of 10 times the original budget. But that's all yeah. other stories. So this is why there are traffic professors, man. There's a lot <laughs> to think about. I do. It's it's hard. I mean, it, it's it's we are a land of, of individuals, which is great in a lot of ways, but also sometimes makes collective efforts to make things better, more difficult. I rode an e-bike for the first time. I actually got lost on a bike tour in Paris on an e-bike, but like an e-bike like changed my view of like all this kind of stuff. And so I think we probably can be a little better, but it's going to take a collective push for us to get there. And there is a certainly a large part of me, and this would be like six more as I have a podcast. It's like, is a bunch of robot cars really the answer? It's like, maybe we just need to ride buses and trains and bikes a little bit more and like think about how we plan things. But it's a great, big, wonderful world out there, and we'll see what happens. I mean, everything in Disney World is like everybody's riding a monorail in the future. <laughs> so it's like, why don't we have monorails everywhere? And then a part of it is like, oh, you mean streetcars? I mean, like now we're going backwards? Or we, is the answer actually to be more like we were 150 years ago? So anyway, this is – but take your class. Go take your class. <laughs> Dr. Benjamin Koifman at Ohio State. It's a fascinating subject. We appreciate so, so much you taking time out of your day. This was like a good – at least a couple hundred bucks worth of education, potentially thousands of dollars worth of education that you just threw out for free on a football podcast. So well, no, hopefully, thanks so much for doing it. And I, I hope your bosses aren't like, you know, you're giving away the farm, man. Well, no, there's as, as an educator, my job really fundamentally is to help anyone and everyone get a little bit smarter. And I got to tell you, 90% of the time I'm right. Okay, well, I'll go with your. I'm, I'm like your, I'm like I agree your, with that. I'm Same. Like your, that's my ratio. Also. I'm like your audience. Percent right. of the time, I'm spot on. You can't get more correct. But twenty percent of the time, I'm completely wrong. Um, but that's that's where discourse, debate, discussion. There, there's we need more discussion and debate, and you know, hearing all sides of the story. And 
we need more of that in this world. So, and we all drive, so we all need to be thinking about it. Yes, so maybe we, if everybody got a little bit of tip, but just about how can you make it better for the world out there, and also uh, everybody, don't be mad when I drive up to the end of the merge because like <laughs> that's just what I'm going to do. Okay, he's Dr. Benjamin Koifman. This is we do this on Buckeye Talk. We like having smart people in and talk about interesting things. Doc, thanks so much for your time. It's been on a this. pleasure. Thank you for having me. And that'll do it for Dr. Benjamin Koifman. I'm Doug Lee Maurice, and that was Buckeye Talk. Mm-hmm.